Hey, everybody. Welcome to All There Is. This is your host, Kelly Bargabas. Today, I'm going to share what may seem like an odd topic because it's going to be about divorce. Divorce is something that many of us go through, right? I think the divorce rates are still at probably close to 50% in our country. So it's not unusual. We all know someone who's gone through a divorce. Maybe it's you, maybe it's your sister or brother or best friend, but we all know someone who's had to deal with that. Today's episode is a personal essay that I wrote when I went through it nine to 10 years ago. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to go through so far, one of the hardest, and it took me a long time to get over it. And I really did a lot of grieving and I did a lot of grieving alone. I had good support, had a good job, I was able to support myself, had money, had family, had friends, but I still did most of my grieving alone. And it was just a really hard time to get through. So I wanted to share that with you today. This podcast is all about sharing the human experience and divorce and loss and grief is part of that. And I write about the things that move me with the hope they move you to. So if this resonates with you, great. If it doesn't, you can just skip past it. But thanks for your time today. Here we go. The Five Stages of Losing My Husband by Kelly Bargabas. He doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. I closed my eyes and tried to concentrate on my new mantra. He loves someone else. He loves someone else. He loves someone else. I had recently begun saying that to myself several times throughout the day. It sounded harsh, but I needed it. It was a way for me to change the channel in my mind. Shock therapy. When I was a kid listening to music, sometimes one of my records would skip. The needle would become locked in a groove, and I would jump up and down and stomp my feet on the floor to move the needle to the next track. That was what I needed some days in my head. During my 30-minute car ride to and from work every day, with the music turned up, sometimes singing, sometimes just watching the passing farmland, I'd realized that I was wondering what he was doing, how his commute was going, the last time he and I heard that song together. He doesn't love you. He loves someone else. Sometimes I said it after I got off the phone with him, and we had had a good conversation, and it felt like old times. I often found myself checking my cell phone every five minutes to see if I had a text or missed call from him. I would repeat my mantra, trying to convince myself to stop, to get the needle to move. It's over. He's gone. He's not coming back. I was having trouble accepting that my husband of 18 years and best friend of 25 didn't love me anymore which is why I created the mantra in the first place. That was something I would have to accept in stages. Beer and nachos helped me get through those first weeks after that day in July. We were so civil about the whole thing. I went to the grocery store and bought him peanut butter and jelly and the wavy potato chips he likes. While he stayed home to pack a bag, he thought it would be a good idea to go to dinner together, and then he would leave for our friend's apartment. She had agreed to let him stay there as long as he needed a non-permanent solution to what was supposed to be a temporary problem. He said we just needed space. We ordered a drink before dinner and made small talk. That had always been one of our favorite ways to spend time together, having a few drinks, telling each other what had happened in our day, and appreciating good food. But our table for two that night in July was overcast with a pain neither one of us could comprehend nor discuss. When dinner was over, he walked with me into our home. We looked at each other, both of us on the verge of sobbing, and embraced. I pressed my face into his chest. 
His head rested on mine, and both our bodies shook with all-out sobs. We held on to each other, knowing without realizing it that he wouldn't come home again. We peeled ourselves apart. He picked up his bag and walked out of our door. I wandered around the house looking for him, longing for him. I ran my finger along the safari desk that held the memories from our Kenya trips, one, two, and three. I stared at the painting we fell in love with six months before we bought it, six months before we bought our place with just the right wall to hang it. I looked through the telescope that had been one of his Christmas presents and that I could never get to focus. I watered the ficus tree in the corner, which used to be his job, already knowing that it wouldn't survive either. I sat at the dining room table designed by us to fit perfectly in our space and stared at the white shelves it took forever to find. I stood in the middle of our walk-in closet that still had more of his stuff than mine and buried my face in his shirts, searching for a remnant of his scent. Our house became a tomb that held the body of our dead relationship. Here lies K and K. They were happy once. Ghosts lined the shelves and walls of the tomb. Ghosts of the good times, the life-changing experiences, the beach vacations, California's Highway 1, Mexico, Africa, St. John, 25 years in picture frames. Frames decorated with beach umbrellas and flip-flops. Silver frames, frames with captions like, Live, Laugh, Love, or One Big Happy Family. The best moments of our lives staring at me, teasing me, taunting me, reminding me that he was gone. The pictures alone were enough to send me face down into a plate of hot, cheesy chips. No one knew of my secret beer and nachos habit. Most of my grieving took place at night. During the day, I could pretend that nothing had changed, that I was still me, that I still had a husband. I would forget that he left me. I did all my usual things. I never missed a day of work. I showed up on time and managed, supervised, spoke to vendors, customers, and employees, all the while looking forward to my plate of tortilla chips with a layer of medium heat salsa covered in an orange blanket of cheese. I continued training for my triathlon at the end of August. I ached for those bike rides and swims, while my feet snapped in the pedals would push me forward on the flats, up hills and down again. I would think of nothing other than my husband and the events leading up to that night in July. The words we said, the words we didn't say, the silences and unexplained absences that now made perfect sense. I gave my mind permission to obsess while my body sweated and hauled ass. When I swam in the lake at our weekly training, I would reach out, the tips of my fingers plunging down, my palm pressing against the weight of the water as I pulled my body forward. Refusing to be tangled in the weeds beneath me or panicked by the distance in front of me, I pushed the water out of my way, leaving fear and doubt in my wake. But when the day was over, after all the work and working out, all the obligations, the pretense that I was the same person I was before. After walking by the empty space to the right of the welcome mat where his shoes used to be, when I opened my front door, the stench of our decaying marriage smacked me full in the face. My house echoed with silence. My bed was empty, but my belly would soon be full of cheese and chips and my mind quieted by a gratifying beer buzz. I would drink the beer first, a chilled glass from the top shelf of my freezer. A Corona light popped open and poured just right, a lime. Ah, nothing tastes as good as that first beer. But one wasn't enough, two, 
three. During the fourth, I would begin to make the nachos. It was just enough of a buzz to feel like I'd survive the night, but not too much that I'd be drunk. I didn't want to be drunk. I had to get up in the morning. I set my last beer on the table to my left, took my seat on the couch, and folded my feet under me, settling the mounded plate on the pillow in my lap. One by one, I lifted each gooey chip into my mouth, resting it there for just a moment before I chewed and swallowed. Beer and nachos soothed my soul. I knew a nightly habit of beer and nachos wouldn't solve my problems, just add ten noticeable pounds to my short frame, but in the midst of my grief and sadness, there was something in that salty crunch, sweet tomatoes, oniony salsa, and the warm silky cheese that gave me enough comfort to get through the night. That was my time, the time between my day of pretending that everything was okay and nothing had changed, to going to our bed and crying myself to sleep. The days grew shorter and the nights cold. With my triathlon over and my summer nights of training done for the season, I turned to an old friend, Crown Royal, mixed with Fresca. I limited myself to one can most nights, and however many drinks I could make with those 12 ounces of Fresca is what I had. I also watched the first four seasons of Mad Men, one episode a night. I didn't have my needy, narcissistic, selfish child of a husband to glare at on the sofa next to me, but I did have Don Draper, Peter, Roger, and all the other mad, mad men of the 60s. Their painful, dysfunctional lives were an odd comfort to me, along with the cozy warmth of whiskey. At night, there was no denying he was gone. His slippers were in front of the fireplace. His toothbrush was in the holder. Clean clothes were folded on the bench in the bedroom waiting to be put away. His drawer in the bathroom was still full of his pills, his cologne, his razor. It was like he had dropped dead unexpectedly or died in an accident. I felt like even the walls were asking, where is he? When's he coming home? At times, I felt like he was on a business trip and would be home any day. Some nights, sitting on the couch watching television, I would hear a noise outside the front door and turn to look, half expecting him to walk in. He was gone, but he was still here. And part of me liked that. I seemed to be a glutton for emotional punishment and would set myself up for repeated beatings. The first punch was a Saturday at the garage sale in September. We worked together to clean out our storage area, and he told me he had spent $4,000 on new bedroom furniture for his apartment. He's not coming home. The second blow to the gut was later that same month. I always took the day of my birthday off from work, and that year would be no different. I had decided to go into hiding. I was grateful for well-meaning friends and family who would be calling my phone throughout the day, but I knew I couldn't bear to hear the sympathy in their voice, so I made plans to spend the day and night out of town with my phone turned off. Just as I was sure I was getting away scot-free, I found flowers and a card outside my door. He must have dropped them off early that morning on his way to work. I brought the flowers in and set them on the counter. My heart raced as I ripped open the envelope. His card read like one you'd buy for a friend of your mother that you don't know very well. I read his closing and gasped. I hope someday you can forgive me. My purse dropped to the floor as I bent over trying to breathe. He doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. I threw the card on the floor, put the flowers in water, picked up my bag and slammed the door behind me. The third punch was the day he had surgery for skin cancer. Before I could offer to give him a ride, I found out she was taking him. Not only did she pick him up, but he introduced her that morning to our friend, who had the apartment. 
The final knockout blow was the text he meant for her and sent to me by mistake. Do you know how much I love you? It said. I finally grew sick and tired of New York in the 60s and the messy lives of people who lived a hopeless, faithless existence. That drove me to the polar opposite of Mad Men into my rom-com stage. I scoured the television and Netflix for movies like Something's Gotta Give, It's Complicated, The Holiday, The Wedding Date, Love Actually, Sex in the City, the first one, and Must Love Dogs. Any movie with 40-something women who had had their heart crushed and were trying to find someone to love them again. I feasted on these movies, along with a nice bottle of Cabernet. I wanted inspiration to be a better version of me. Someone like Diane Keaton, Meryl Streep, Deborah Messing, Kate Winslet, Emma Thompson, or Diane Lane. I consoled myself with the fact that Sandra Bullock was cheated on, Brad left Jennifer for Angelina, Heather Locklear's husband cheated, Christy Brinkley's. If it could happen to beautiful, gorgeous women, women that most ordinary men fantasize about, maybe the fact that my husband left me didn't mean that I was old, fat, ugly, unattractive, and unsexy. Maybe it wasn't me at all. At least that is what I told myself when I wasn't thinking about losing 20 pounds so I could get a new man. When I transitioned to that stage of the formulaic Hollywood version of romance and starting over, it was the holiday season. I knew I had to brace myself for the weeks to come. It would be a time of many firsts, like the first Thanksgiving in 25 years without him. We had developed our own little routine of skipping out on the family dinners and went away by ourselves for a delightful four-day weekend. One year it was Lake Placid. One year a cozy barn converted to an inn in Pennsylvania. New York City for the parade. Philadelphia. We love that holiday. He came over Christmas Eve and we drank a bottle of wine and exchanged small gifts. We had a nice time. I should have said my mantra. That set me up for a swift kick in the gut three days later when it was his birthday, and I asked him if he wanted to do something with me. He told me he was going to dinner with her. He doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. More than anything, I missed being loved. I missed having someone who thought I was beautiful, someone who lit up when I walked through the door, someone who was happy to see me, happy to watch TV with me, to go to happy hour with on Friday night, and didn't mind when I was gassy or grumpy or hadn't washed my hair in two days. I was out of town for work and had made it back to my hotel room after a long day of meetings, a business dinner, and drinks. I realized then that nobody was waiting for my text or phone call to say, Hey, I'm back in my room, safe and sound. I sat on my hotel bed, too tired and too sad to cry, overwhelmed with the knowledge that I was the only one worried about me getting back to my room after a few beers. There was no one waiting up to make sure I was safe. I suppose it would have been easier to get over him if I had somebody to love, but I didn't, and I didn't even know where to begin finding one. I found myself looking at men in the grocery store, in line at the bank, crossing the street, and thinking, could he be my next husband? Is he single? Does he want to talk to me? I couldn't imagine kissing somebody new or getting naked in front of someone who hadn't known my 21-year-old body with perkier breasts and a flatter stomach. I knew I would miss that. After the first three stages of Beer and Nachos, Crown Royal and Mad Men, rom-com movies and red wine, the panic set in. 
holy shit, somebody new is going to see my naked body. They will see my body and won't remember what it looked like 25 years ago. That drove me to sign up for a 6 a.m. boot camp class at the gym, which was a big commitment. But getting naked with my future husband was a commitment, and I knew I had to feel good about myself in order to do that. I love to work out. That didn't scare me. It was the getting up at 5.30 in the morning, which meant going to bed earlier. What would become of my nighttime ritual of eating and drinking myself into a faux peaceful state? I needed to lose the nachos and the crown royal. I needed to lose 10 pounds. I needed to lose the last 25 years. With my new plan, I started to gain control of my body, but my mind was another story. There were nights I was pulled so strongly towards my closet, I wanted to take my pillow in a blanket and go in my walk-in, close the door, and curl up on the floor. I can't tell you why, but I wanted to badly. There were days when I physically craved the way you would a cigarette or a shot of whiskey, being at my mother's house, curled up on her couch with an afghan over me and her placing her cool hand on my forehead and walking away, clicking her tongue and getting me ginger ale and saltine crackers. I wanted to sleep in my parents' house again. I wanted to curl up with my mother and have her hug me. It was also during that phase that I was able to string together a whole day without crying, and then two days, and soon I was able to string together enough days to make a week, until a song came on the radio, or I caught a whiff of a scent, or I picked up my phone to call him to tell him what happened at work that day, before I remembered. In that stage, I didn't have anything specific that I was using to dull the pain. I rotated between beer, crown, and cabernet. The nacho kick was long gone. I had days of peace and some with no tears. Nights were still the hardest. Even in the earliest of my stages of grief, I realized that the things that brought me joy before would still bring me joy. Songs on the radio could still make me feel 16 again. Spending time with my family, holding my niece's baby, going to the movies or out with friends still brought happiness. I could move through the world brokenhearted. My heart was in pieces, but I could still function and even smile. The fifth stage began 224 days after he moved out. It was a Sunday morning, and I had been to church and the grocery store. My chores were done. I was relaxed, drinking a cup of tea, reading the paper while I waited for him to come over. He had just called and said he was going out of town for work and needed to pick up a suitcase. I was looking forward to seeing him. It had been a while. That would have been a good time to say my mantra. I thought I could handle it. Then I got a text from my sister. She saw him at the mall Saturday night with a blonde. The needle jerked, and suddenly I was out of my groove. I let out a wail from the deepest part of my gut as I ran to our closet. I ripped all his golf shirts, buttoned-down Oxfords, khakis, and dress pants off the closet rod, left them on the hangers, and dragged them to the living room floor. I pulled his 25 shoeboxes down off the top shelf of the closet and stacked them by the door. I emptied six drawers of t-shirts, shorts, and socks into garbage bags and piled them all in the living room. I had 15 minutes from the time my sister texted me until he arrived at my door. Not a lot of time, but apparently it was all I needed. I had been dreading that day for months. I knew the only thing worse than looking at his clothes every day would be looking at the empty space when it was all gone. It was the worst day of all the days so far. I was inconsolable. After sobbing on the floor until I had nothing left, there was only one thing I could do. I washed my face, drove to the nearest convenience store, and bought a bag of tortilla chips, salsa, cheese, and a six-pack. Ten days later, on a snowy day in March, I stood in my closet with a glass of Crown Royal and Fresca.
But there was no mad men, and I didn't taste grief at the bottom of my drink. I was celebrating. I had had a few extra hours in the afternoon and decided to tackle my closet head-on. I rearranged my purses and bags. I piled my shoe boxes where his used to be. I spread out my clothes and separated my white jeans and sundresses from my sweaters and suits. I filled the empty space he left behind with me. I didn't cry once. I didn't know what stage would be next, but I knew I'd be okay. Whether I was at the bottom of a bottle of beer sunk by a belly full of nachos and cheese or swimming in a pool of crown royal and morally bankrupt madmen, I had managed to hold onto hope. At first it was the hope that it wasn't really happening. Then it was the hope that he would just come home, that he would realize what a horrible mistake he had made and that he still loved me and couldn't live his life without me. Some days it was the simple hope that I would make it through until I could get home and crawl in bed and fall asleep again, and maybe when I woke up life would be different. I held on to the hope that I'd be okay, that I'd find love once again. I hoped to be happy. I hoped to be kinder to myself. I would still have days when I'd have trouble coming to grips with the fact that I would never sit with him on the beach again, with our toes in the sand holding hands across our chairs, with him looking through binoculars for dolphins and other signs of life, and me contemplating the waves and the horizon. I would still see things that reminded me of us. Our last two names on the mailbox, our joint checking account and tax return, his name on the phone bill. And on those days, I'd say my mantra, until I accepted that those two people don't exist together anymore. I didn't know then if I would ever understand why our life wasn't enough for him. I knew our story was over, but I also knew mine wasn't. There may have been a plot twist, characters I thought would never leave are gone, and new ones would emerge. It was time for a new groove. It was time for me to write a new story. One, I would start with a new mantra. I'll be okay. I'll be okay. I am okay. Thanks for listening to that. Like I say all the time on this podcast, my intention with sharing such a painful memory for me is that I know there's people out there going through the same type of thing. And if it resonates with you and that brings you comfort or at least lets you know that it's not just you, that it that you're not crazy, that these feelings are real, and that we all grieve in different ways. The point of this essay is grief, the different stages of grief, how it looks different for everybody. And so I hope this was helpful. I know it's not a, a sunshine and roses and daisies and rainbows and unicorns kind of episode, but it's real. I also want to let the audience know that I'm not in this headspace anymore. It's a piece of creative writing that I did at a time when I was in it. And 10 years later, nine to 10 years later is where I'm at today. And I'm healed. I'm happy. I'm remarried. I have love. And my house is no longer empty. It's a new house. So I just want to let everybody know that there is a happy ending. But thanks for tuning in today. I appreciate your time. And you can catch all the past episodes on kellybargabas.com or on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in today. I appreciate your time. Until we meet again, take care. Thank you.